In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Hattle Desai. As some of our listeners may know, I serve as an administrative law judge for the state of Florida's Division of Administrative Hearings. I also am a first-generation lawyer. The term first-generation lawyer generally refers to law graduates whose parents and grandparents did not attend college. Many first-generation law students may be less wealthy than their peers or from immigrant families. One of the earliest and most famous first-generation immigrant Florida attorneys was Thomas DeSale Tucker, who was born in Sierra Leone and came to the United States at the age of 12. He was admitted to the Florida Bar in 1883 and eventually became the first president of what would become FAMU. The Florida Bar doesn't keep statistics on first-generation attorneys or about the nationalities of its membership. What we do know is that Florida has a very diverse population both economically and ethnically. Modern-day generation lawyers face unique challenges, regardless of whether they are immigrants or not. Although they may have the academic skills and work ethic, many share social disadvantages, particularly when it comes to professional norms and etiquette, office and school politics, and networking. Their ideas of being a lawyer may be unrealistic based on the media or entertainment industry. First-generation lawyers are also unlikely to have ties or connections to the legal field, and they must learn to make these themselves. Personally, I was lucky to have two role models when I was a young adult that helped me through the process. Jerome Novi, a childhood friend's father, taught me that being a lawyer was a noble profession and that the key to a successful law practice was not only knowledge of the law and advocating for your client, but maintaining a good reputation within the legal community. Leslie Mendelson was an agency attorney who I babysat for. She taught me the importance of public service and the delicate balance of being a working mother. Today's guest is also a first-generation attorney who serves as a role model for others. She's also the first Ethiopian-American judge in the United States. Judge Nina Ashinafi Richardson was elected in 2008 as a county court judge in Leon County, Florida, where she currently serves over both criminal and civil matters and the felony drug court. Off the bench, she is known for her pro bono work and community service for which she has won numerous awards, including the 2019 Distinguished Judicial Service Award and the Florida Bar President's Pro Bono Service Award for the Second Judicial Circuit. Welcome, Judge Ashtonafi Richardson, and thank you for being here. The last time we saw each other, I believe, was after the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you put together a memorial Zoom event uh, for local attorneys and judges. How did Justice Ginsburg's life impact you as an attorney? Thank you so much. Well, first, let me begin by saying, Judge Heddle, thank you for inviting me to your third podcast. I'm so honored to be with you. 
We have known each other since our days at Florida High. <laughs> Go Demons. Go Demons. <laughs> um, and so I want to, again, thank you for the work that you do uh, at DOA and um, inviting me. So what, what prompted that gathering by Zoom in honor of uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg was there were uh, men and women calling me just so upset about her passing, and we needed an outlet. And so... Uh, Jody Wilkoff and I decided let's have a Zoom memorial um, and let's have a gathering of community members to just talk about her and what her life was. And in preparing, you know, sometimes you, you don't realize how much someone has meant to you until they're not here anymore. Certainly that's a lesson we know to, during COVID. Uh, it's raised our awareness to make sure to pause and appreciate and acknowledge your family and friends and those who have meant a lot to you to take time to call them, to not be busy being busy. I know that's one of the lessons that I've learned from COVID. Um, but what it did was that memorial caused us uh, to realize that um, she had a powerful impact. She said three things when she was alive, that she was discriminated for three reasons. She was a woman, she was a mother, and she was Jewish. And there are still women uh, professionals that to this day in 2020, they still feel that way. It's a challenge for them to be successful because they're women. They have a religion that may not be in the mainstream and or their, um, the color of their skin or their ethnicity. And so one of the quotes that she said, which I have here is, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. And so whether she was fighting for men's e equality, and so many of the cases were for men, or women, she really raised our awareness that what makes our country great is the principles that ground our Constitution, uh, that um, equal citizenship for men and women, regardless of your religion or your, or your um, race. And that is truly what makes our country great. And she personified that. She personified why we love our Constitution and why we love our great country. Well, it was a lovely memorial. And um, again, I want to thank you for putting that together. And I know that you yourself have spoken on, on numerous panels and, and podcasts about gender issues uh, faced by attorneys. But I'd like to explore with you today what you faced uh, as a first-generation law student, lawyer, and, and judge. And I know you were born in Ethiopia. Um, how did you end up in Tallahassee? Yes. So um, my dad was the one that brought me to the United States. He was very active uh, in the Peace Corps in Ethiopia under President Kennedy. And he connected with the Peace Corps because he founded the Yard School of Music in Ethiopia. He taught world music. And so the Peace Corps program connected with his school and brought uh, people from all over the world to Ethiopia. And um, through the Peace Corps program. And so he was invited through that program to come to the U.S., live with a family, and finish his uh, doctorate degree in ethnomusicology. So we moved to Connecticut, a little town called Middletown, Connecticut. Needless to say, it was a shock for that small community. Uh, it, is, uh, it was a beautiful community with white picket fences and black shutters, and all of a sudden, this uh, East African family moved in to uh, a home, and my dad ended up finishing his doctorate, but it was definitely a culture shock. My mom 
couldn't take it. It was so hard for her to live in in in, in uh, Middletown, Connecticut. She missed her mom and her family. There weren't too many brown people in Middletown, Connecticut, so she moved back home. Uh, we have since been estranged. My parents divorced. Um, my dad chose to stay in the U.S. because he loved uh, teaching. He became a professor. And we, we ended up going to Massachusetts, where he taught at Brandeis University. And then he came here to Tallahassee, Florida, to be an ethnomusicology professor at the School of Music at FSU and to run the Center for Black Culture. So I've had the privilege of living in an amazing city. So Middletown, Connecticut. I lived in Queens, New York. I lived in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, and then in Florida. And so my dad's training to love all people, to accept different cultures, to be open uh, and welcoming to people that may look different, sound different, whose foods are different, whose cultures are different, um, to to welcome it, to be open, to be non-judgmental, and that has been a really big influence in my life. And even even as a judge, I practice that every day. I see people coming into the courtroom who look different, who have different experiences, who have different socioeconomic backgrounds, but my dad's uh, core training is to to be open, non-judgmental, uh, to let people be, and to accept them the way they are, and from from uh, whatever experience they come from and to and to just learn from it. How old were you when you came over? I was four. And um, it must have been a very hard to lose your mother uh, and for her to move away. But uh, once you got to Tallahassee, uh, tell us about what kind of role models or other people that were in your life that helped support you. Thank you. Yes, I, it, it was hard to, uh, I still miss my mom as an immigrant. I meet so many other families who's, who, who were divided and who were separated. Their grandparents, great-grandparents, family members are living in other countries while they have the benefit of living in this country. And it is the immigrant story. You can't always have every member of your family together with you. Um, but the role models were certainly uh, one, my dad. You know, he was my mom and my dad. He sacrificed a lot because of education. That was another core value that uh, a second core value that my dad taught, the, that education is the great equalizer, that with the educational opportunities that we have in, in America, you can accomplish every dream that you ever desired, and that I'm a living testament to that. I am, a, a, my testimony is that I am a product of the American dream. So we uh, previously have discussed being immigrants and immigrant families, and I know in our family, um, being a lawyer was not one of those professions that my parents pushed me toward. Uh, how about you? How did you end up in law school? It's the same. The pinnacle for an Im immigrant family, for their child uh, to become, is a doctor. That's the number one. You want to be a doctor, then if it's not a doctor, then you, you become an engineer. And if you're not going to be an engineer, perhaps something in the sciences, you know lawyers were not at the top of the heap, and mainly because lawyers in other countries um, perhaps don't have the same uh, degree of professionalism that is required here in the U.S. Because as a lawyer, I can tell you that the rules of professional conduct, the rules of um, our profession are high, and I know that they're important to me and to most of the lawyers that I that I work with. And certainly as a judge, I have to follow the judicial canons. I am a rule follower, 
but um, a lot of the work that I do, podcasts such as this, is to remind uh, those of us in the profession that we must always conduct ourselves in the highest level so that we don't degrade the profession. You know, if you hear about one bad lawyer, it hurts the entire profession. If you hear about one bad judge, it degrades the entire profession. And how important it is that we live up to the ideals of our of being a lawyer. And by the way, lawyers are keep what keep you know, you can have a statute or a law, but you know who brings it to life? A lawyer. Were they're just words on paper. It takes a lawyer to bring justice to the courts. It takes a human being to take those words and statutes and rules and bring them to life. And we have to bring those words to life in an ethical, professional, and civil way, the way the bar requires us to. I can tell you're, you're really passionate about the professionalism, but I want to stick to your story okay. <laughs> and get back to how you ended up in law school um, instead of going into the sciences or, or even ethnomusicology. That's right. So I started as a pre-med major, and I had a class, Organic Chemistry, taught by Professor Saltillo, who is still at Florida State teaching organic chemistry, and who is still a dear friend. And afterwards, I said, that's it. That's it. I can't do this. No. So it, it weeded me out. <laughs> so I changed majors, and I decided to major in international affairs with a minor in French, and, and um, I, I studied like seven years of French. So that was much more fitting for me, and I just decided once I changed my major that I was going to become the lawyer that I always wanted to be. I knew that I loved books. I had to be in a profession where there was a lot of books and a lot of reading, and I wanted to be in a profession where you could actually help people, and so I, I just knew that that was... And I always looked up to lawyers, I mean, when I was in college and I would watch uh, lawyers, uh, whether it was on the media, real live lawyers, I looked up to them. I just thought they were the smartest people. I, I, I um, listened to them. They seemed to be so articulate and knowledgeable. And I just thought, you know, that is what I want to do. I want to help people using the rule of law. And, and have you been able to, to help people? Um, I know that you, you do in your judicial uh, role, but... But coming out of law school, what was your your first job out of law school? So, uh, at a you know when I was in law school, I worked for a big firm, uh, a silk so stocking law firm uh, called Fowler White, and we did certificate of work, certificate of need work, and environmental law. And um, I worked for someone named Deborah Getzoff, who is still a dear friend, mentor. She's the one that hired me. And I thought that was what I was going to do, was be in a big firm and do environmental law or certificate of need work. And, I, and, and by the way, while I was doing that, I said to myself, wait a second, I'm working seven days a week and I'm billing and I'm, you know, it's a lot of billing pressure and I'm working seven days a week and, so, and I had a eureka moment. I said, wait a second, I, maybe this is not what I want to do. Maybe the private practice life is, is not for me. And so I ended up getting, I went back to my professor, one of my professors, Professor McHugh, who's now passed. And I said, you know, Professor McHugh, I thought that what I wanted was to be in a big firm and bill and, um, you know, do this work. But I, I want to actually do something different where I'm more connected to people, where I can actually help people uh, versus corporate 
entities. And so he connected me with Tom Young, who was the general counsel of the Florida Education Association, which was a teacher's association. And I applied for a position there, and I ended up getting hired as in-house counsel. And I stayed there for 18 years. I loved fighting for teachers and college professors and school-related personnel. And I would uh, fight for educators. And it was the, one of the most meaningful jobs that I've had. It was a, I did it for 18 years, and I loved it. You know, you switched over to, uh, to working for the FEA. But before that, did you feel that being an immigrant or being a first-generation lawyer that you were at any kind of disadvantage in mm -hmm. the firm life. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, but in hindsight, I see it more clear. When I was hired by Fowler White and Deborah Getzoff hired me, I was the only brown person in the entire firm, and they had a Tallahassee office and they had a um, they had a uh, Tampa office, and it never. I mean, it was. But I didn't really acknowledge that until after. Again, with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and I did feel pressure to do a good job. You know, I felt pressure to, uh, if I was going to be the only minority at the firm, to do a good job, to make my boss proud, to do the research, to learn. Um, I would try to get there before she did and leave after she did. I tried to um, study, write, uh, research, and just be the best that I could be. But I also learned that I wanted more balance in my life that uh, the two years there taught me I want to have balance. I want to, uh, I want to have a weekend where I can travel. I want to ultimately get married. And that job was um, uh, extremely demanding. And you had to be married to your job. And I just decided that that was not making me happy. I had to have a better work-life balance. And I had to leave that position. And, um, and uh, Deborah Getzoff supported my decision. She was a very understanding and she was very supportive, and I'm glad I made that decision. Well, it sounds like you had some important role models in your life, mm -hmm. um, and we, in this podcast, have interviewed a few judges who were appointed and went through the appointment process. What, uh, what made you decide that you wanted to run for office uh, as an elected official? Mm. Thank you so much for that question. It, that was a really scary decision. Um, what made me decide was the encouragement of other uh, people in my life. Uh, I don't know if you know, but there are studies that show that women do not run for office unless they're asked. I don't know why. You have to ask a, a lawyer or, or another woman to run. It's not something we just do on our own, and I've read several articles on that, which I thought was interesting. But um, my husband encouraged me. Uh, Judge Hawkins uh, encouraged me. Uh, many women friends with the Tallahassee Women Lawyers who were leaders within that organization encouraged me when an opportunity came, and many friends with the Tallahassee Bar. I was reticent because I didn't see people on the bench that looked like me. And I said to myself, you know, will the community Tallahassee vote for me? Will they vote for someone from East Africa with an ethnic name, Ashinafi? Uh, who looks different, talks different. And I had a real scare. It was really scary. I want, you know, because when you run for office, you have to, you have to put yourself out there and you have to jump off a cliff and you don't know how you're going to land. Well, let's talk about that process of, of jumping in. Um, obviously, you have, to, um, you have to get vetted by the public. 
you have to raise money. Uh, There's so many other ways that you're putting your, your, yourself out there and your family out there. Talk about the uh, election process, the campaigning process of being becoming a judge. Yes, the campaign process is rigorous. Um, the The part that I dislike the most is having to have a campaign committee of friends who have to raise money for you. Uh, the judicial canons disallow a can a judicial candidate from asking for money. So you have to ask a group of friends to raise the money for you. It's a committee, a fundraising committee. That was just painful for me. Uh, you know, I was brought up that you don't ask for things. You give things. Um, if you have to ask, it's a vulnerability. It's a weakness. Don't ask. So that was a big hurdle for me to put together a group of people and ask them to help me. So I had to get past that. Um, I decided to run because I didn't want to live a life of regret. And by the way, I speak a lot about that because there's so many people who are so afraid to live their dream because they're afraid for many reasons, like I was. And so one of my main messages to those who are listening to this podcast is if you have a dream, go for it. You have nothing to lose. Don't be a 70, 80-year-old person sitting in your rocking chair wishing that you did something that you dreamed about. Um, if I can do it with all of the challenges, you can do it. And so once I put my mind to running for office, Heddle, I went for it 100%. So once I made the decision, I got the committee together, I went out and campaigned and walked neighborhoods and did all the stereotypic things that you see a candidate do. Um, my committee raised the money. I had an amazing committee. I call, I call um, many of the women who I'm still friends with uh, who are still in my life helping me, um, retired Judge Hawkins, Kelly Overstreet Johnson, Kelly O'Keefe, Gigi Rolini. Um, I had a core group, Wendy LaQuasto. See, I'm getting myself in trouble when I'm naming friends. But um, And Kathy Lannon, to this day, they're still in my life. They're still encouraging me and believing in me. Another point I want to draw for those who are listening to this podcast. Encourage each other, support each other. Uh, when you have uh, a friend, a lawyer that aspires to be on the bench or aspires to run for public office, encourage them, help them. It really does make a difference. But for that encouragement, I would not be where I am right now. It took the encouragement, the support, uh, and the belief in me from others before I actually believed in myself to do it. And so I encourage the listeners to, to, to be that encourager for someone else, to be that supportive person for someone else. It truly makes a difference. Well, I know that you serve uh, as a role model and you support all of your friends as well, mm -hmm. um, but you also do a lot of pro bono work yes. and you've won awards for that um, mm -hmm. and been recognized. Um, what kind of pro bono work or community service are you interested in or mm -hmm. would encourage other attorneys to do? Yes. So as an attorney, um, I definitely made a name for myself by working and doing pro bono service. Um, and I was recognized by the Florida Bar and the Supreme Court for it, but I didn't do it for that attention. But I used the attention to promote pro bono service. Uh, I believe that every lawyer and every judge must do some level of pro bono service. So, you know, as 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 being uh, in when you're on the bench and being the judge, you're limited in what kind of um, community service you can do and pro bono service yes, that you can do. Absolutely. I am limited, but there, there are many, like for instance, one of the ways I serve um, 
uh, is to uh, speak about pro bono service to encourage different programs. Uh, I just completed a, um, a video with North Florida Legal Services and the Florida Bar encouraging our attorneys to, to do pro bono service, especially now. Uh, COVID has caused so many in our respective communities to go through a lot. As you, as you know, before this podcast, I had a landlord-tenant hearing. Um, we are going to have uh, a, a very si serious crisis as we speak with individuals who lost their employment, um, who are going through economic hardship, who are having to leave their homes. Uh, landlord-tenant cases are on the rise. I have connected with the, the uh, Florida State Law School. Uh, we have Florida State Law School has law students who are committed to doing pro bono service and helping our veterans uh, and citizens um, apply for assistance through the CARES Act. The CARES Act allows grant money for people who need help to pay their rent. And But you know what? Many citizens don't know how to fill out forms. They're disabled citizens. They're veterans who don't have a computer, uh, who don't have a printer. They can uh, or know how to download things. So I'm able to connect resources through the courts to help our respective community members. I enjoy doing that. Um, so judges are limited in what, for instance, judges are not allowed to fundraise, but we can certainly be out in the community raising awareness, making connections between our bar associations, um, organizations like Legal Aid, organizations like North Florida Legal Services, it's a very important part of what we can do because we're seeing firsthand the need out in the community and we cannot turn a blind eye to it. And then another area you were talking about landlord-tenant, uh, you also oversee the felony drug court. Yes. Uh, are you seeing changes in the drug? Yes. Talk about that a little bit. So Heddle, um, I'm pleased to tell you that there has been a change in philosophy at a national level. Uh, in lieu of putting people in prison or jail for drug-related or alcohol-related addiction issues, we are treating these types of issues as a disability, as we should. They are disabilities. And so when a person commits to treatment, then in exchange for a minimum of a year treatment, that felony case will be dismissed. By dismissing the felony case, they can go on with their life um, to find employment, to not have, because if you have a felony on your record, it is near impossible to find employment. So the treatment aspect has been extremely successful. Uh, those who graduate from drug court programs are able to have the treatment paid for by the program. So the majority of individuals in treatment court are unable to pay for treatment, uh, but the program, you pay a small fee, which is minimal, in Tallahassee, the drug court program monthly fee is $95, uh, but we were able, the Second Judicial Circuit, we were able to obtain a grant uh, from the Florida legislature that supplements our program. And because of that supplemental uh, uh, grant, our participants don't have to pay as much as they probably would have otherwise. So I cannot say enough about the benefits of treatment. Uh, it is an honor to be able to see people when they come in looking very challenged, to seeing them when they graduate, where they have a sparkle in their eye, they are back to themselves, and they, they have their family members around them, and they have their children around them, and they literally graduate with a new chapter and a second chance. 
Well, I want to talk a little bit about your family. Um, and you have two beautiful daughters. Um, why don't you, I know that you're proud of both of them. Yes. And one uh, served, I think she's still in the Naval Academy. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so my husband, 100 years combined military service in every arm of, of uh, the armed services. And so my firstborn, Karina Richardson, she she took it to heart and on her own, uh, she graduated uh, from high school, Rickards High School in the IB program. Go Raiders. Yes. And I know your daughter goes there too. And she applied to the Naval Academy. It was a rigorous application, uh, very competitive, uh, but she was accepted. She w- received a congressional appointment from uh, Congressman Lawson. She was his first appointment as congressman. She is now in her third year. Uh, she aspires to be a pilot and engineer, so that is what she's working on. Um, she um, is very, very uh, about public service. She's going to serve her country. She had to give a five-year commitment, so when she graduates from the Naval Academy, uh, she will be committed five years to serving our great country. I'm very proud of her. And then the second child is her. Her name's Aida. She's a 15-year-old at Leon High School. She's excellent student. Um, on Go the, Lions! Yes, <laughs> and she's a cheer. She was a cheerleader, um, and uh, at Florida High, and now at Leon, she's on the soccer team. What a great team! Great coach and. Uh, and we don't want her to grow up so fast. We're, we're, we're trying to have her just enjoy her life. And, and we don't want to be empty nesters. So we're really enjoying Aida and, and trying to spend every moment with her. And right now with virtual classes at home, we really are. <laughs> well, how, um, how do you have so much time? Uh, you're, you know, you work, you do all this pro bono work, and then you have a great family mm-hmm. life, uh, very rich what advice do you have for working attorneys, young yes. working attorneys? Yes. Earlier in your question, I told you I had to leave a position that did not allow me to lead the authentic life, the work-life balance that I needed. And so for those who are listening, it's so important, first of all, to know what is important to you. Um, spend time with yourself. Sometimes we're so busy being busy that we don't even know what's important to us. So I say this because the American Bar Association wrote an article recently about a huge transitioning of women lawyers in particular based on a study out of the legal profession. And this was in their 50s because they were not leading the life that they wanted. They were not happy. And so they were leaving the profession at a national level. So don't wait until you're in your 50s which is still young, I'm in my 50s, Um, make the change that you need to for your life. So it could be working less and doing things uh, in the community. It could be starting um, a project that you've always dreamed about. It could be writing a book. One of my colleagues, uh, Lane Smith, just finished a book. It was on his bucket list to, to write a book, and he did. And so whatever your list is, whatever your bucket list is, accomplish it. Be happy. You can be a lawyer. And you know who makes the best lawyers? The happy lawyers. Um, When you're happy and you're fulfilled and you're balanced and you're doing things and spending time in a meaningful way, then you will make a better lawyer. You will make a better judge. 
Okay, and one final question. Uh, if you could give one piece of advice for a new attorney uh, in your, that's appearing in your courtroom, what would that be? The advice I would give to a young lawyer is to honor our profession because you are our future. So, and when I say our future, the future of the profession, in order for the profession to be respected, in order for the profession to be honored, uh, in order for the profession to be one that we send our children into, you are the ones who have to carry the torch. That means be a civil lawyer. Know what the rules of professional conduct are. Know what it means to be civil. Know what it means to be ethical. So not only are you reading the rules of professional conduct, but you're living them. So that means, for instance, when you're in court, um, uh, whether you win or lose your case, shake the hand of opposing counsel. Um, be respectful in the courtroom. Be respectful to each other. Um, be well-read. Study your craft and be the best lawyer that you can be because people are counting on you to be the best lawyer. Don't cut corners. Um, and study. Be a well-studied attorney. Know your craft and be the best that you can be at it. You are carrying the torch for the future of this profession. Thank you, Judge Ashanafi Richardson, for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure being with you, Heddle. That wraps it up for this edition of Never Contemplated. I'd like to thank Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young at the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism for their administrative support, and Clay Shaw, the technical producer and the Florida Bar's creative support manager. You can find information on the Distinguished Service Award, the How She Did It podcast featuring Judge Ashanafi Richardson and links to the various articles on minority representation in the law at the Florida Bar website under the Never Contemplated podcast page. Thank you for listening.